I've been listening to Even Now by Barry Manilow for years. And I listened to it once yesterday. Welcome to Spin It. It's the second Connor takeover. everyone welcome to spin it the podcast for people who would rather be listening to music i'm connor with me james hi yeah i'm i'm in the passenger seat again i'm riding shotgun that's right i'm in charge well i'm flying this plane i'm steering this ship um you're like stevie wonder i gave you you're stevie wonder and I, i'm the president of ghana and i gave you the controls so you could fly the plane and i'm blind no <laughs> you might fly like it <laughs> yeah uh, but yeah, if you haven't figured it out already from the intro and just the fact that I'm the one doing all the talking right now, uh, this is a counter takeover. I've picked the album this week, turned in my punch card at the end of last episode. James has been subjected to an album of my choice. Hopefully, I'm hoping he likes this one more than he ended up liking Miley. Still a little raw from your take on that one. Yeah, it's been 20 episodes now. Plastic Hearts by Miley Cyrus was your last pick for the podcast and really this is my this is this is my first true pick because that one came out of nowhere that one was a surprise even to me i mean like that was that was an album i discovered because of dua lipa that you didn't pick miley cyrus yeah i didn't pick miley cyrus miley cyrus picked me yeah so this is the first one that like is an album i've listened to for years you know before this podcast was even an idea and i wanted to bring yeah yeah, this is your first real pick, and uh, I, I'm familiar with Barry Manilow more so probably than I am or was with Miley Cyrus. As far as Barry Manilow goes, I mean, I know all the greatest hits. I have some Barry Manilow records on vinyl, including this one, but I promise I've only listened to it, I mean, once when I got the record, and then once before this podcast. So I'm not super familiar with the non-greatest hits. Gotcha. Yeah, I've even actually seen Barry in concert. He did a tour in 2015. That I'm jealous of. I went to the tour uh, and I was surrounded by a bunch of fanalos. And I think I think I was maybe the third youngest person there. And I saw two infants. So <laughs> so I was probably on the younger end. There were a lot of uh, like middle-aged and older women there that were having the time of their lives. And uh, I had a lot of fun too. He hasn't, well, he, in 2015, he hadn't lost a step. You know, he still had the stuff. Didn't miss a note. Let's talk about... Barry Manilow. Yeah, let's. I'm excited to hear more about his backstory and just about him in general. Yeah, well, strap in. Uh, this is going to be rough. I'm not used to doing this part. Yeah, that's okay. And this is a... Uh, Barry Manilow has a very complex history. Does he? I, I think so. At least the things that I felt were interesting and relevant enough to talk about. Okay. Yeah, sure. Let's go for it. So, Barry Manilow, born in Brooklyn, New York. Very complex. I don't know. <laughs> no, but, uh, you know, he attended the New York College of Music and studied musical theater at Juilliard. Yeah, our second Juilliard alum in a row. No, I wonder if he knows Adam Driver. <laughs> he might. That seems to be the Juilliard thing. Do you think they were ever in a band together? Could be. Well, the mixtaper might have something to say about that. While working through his studies at these schools, he worked at CBS to pay the bills, right? Mm-hmm. And that was kind of his in into the musical world, because this led to CBS director Bro Harrod to ask Manilow to arrange a song for his musical adaptation of the melodrama The Drunkard. Okay. Instead, Barry wrote an entire musical score for The Drunkard, which 
Heard then used for the full eight-year off-Broadway run that the musical had. So that was kind of Barry's big break. <laughs> wow. Okay, so he was the overachiever. He said, hey, I just need you to do this one little song just quick, it, you know, just arrange it. We've already got it. And then Barry was like, okay, I rewrote everything. Here you go. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Uh... <laughs> oh, no. But who can complain? It's a Barry Manilow score. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was good enough to go on off-Broadway for eight years. So then after college, he continued to work with CBS, and he began working as a jingle writer and singer. He worked on some pretty popular jingles that a lot of you might know, such as uh, State Farm, Like a Good Neighbor. That's Barry Manilow. That's right. Oh, 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 interjection. I have a fun game that you like to play called Guess That Dollar Amount. Guess how much Barry Manilow was paid to create Like a Good Neighbor, State Farm is there. $500. You you have to know that. You have to know that. There's no way. Yes, it was. He was paid $500 flat in 1971 and saw no royalties. Unbelievable. It is. It is. He, <laughs> I can't believe you did that. It's going to be a long episode. <laughs> Not again. Oh, no. He got paid $500 flat, and he says the girl who sang it is on her third Rolls Royce right now, but he never saw any royalty checks. So that's my interjection there. He did I'm Stuck on a Band-Aid for the company Band-Aid. He's done ones for KFC. He did Pepsis all across the nation. It's a Pepsi generation jingle. Join the Pepsi people. Yeah. McDonald's, you deserve a break today. That's one that you don't hear anymore. <laughs> uh, and and then uh, something for Dr. Pepper. I'm not sure which one was doc- what Dr. Pepper's slogan is. Yeah, it was for the most original soft drink. Oh, interesting. Yeah, he also did a song for Toilet Bowl Cleaner, Green Boleen, called the Bathroom Bowl Blues. Love that. I know. Yeah, he's the advertising king. In 2009, he actually won an honorary Clio Award at the 50th 50th anniversary uh, Clio Awards for his work as a jingle writer in the 90s. Uh, When accepting the award, he stated that he learned the most about making pop music by working for three to four years as a writer in the jingle industry. So I guess he credits most of his success as a singer-songwriter to his time doing this. That's true. In 1967, he transitioned to writing music for television. All right. So again, he's still working with CBS while doing all this. Uh, So he did a stint as musical director for the series Callback. He also was the conductor and arranger for Ed Sullivan. Yes, the guy from Ed Sullivan Show. Wait, the, the Ed Sullivan from the Ed Sullivan Show? Yeah. Then that brings us to the 70s where, so he did that, like I said, for a few years. In the 70s, he began to accompany different artists on the piano, such as Tony Orlando and uh, Betty Midler as part of a group of studio musicians who went by the name Featherbed. Um, this was as p- part of Columbia Pictures' record label, Bell Records. And this is where it really starts to go all over the place. This is where things start to crisscross and go crazy, all right? We're, okay, where everything's picking up. I'm strapped in. We're at the t- we were just climbing the roller coaster hill. It's about to go down. He would go on to be the producer and musical director for Betty Midler's debut album, The Divine Miss M, which came out in 1972, which got him his first Grammy nomination for Album of the Year for his production work on it. Nice. He then, a year later, debuted his his debut album, t- just titled Barry Manilow. It was released in 1973. He worked alongside Richard Kerr for that. It was produced by Bell Records. And then, a year later, in 1974, Columbia uh, decided to make another record label other than Bell Records called Astra. Astra's first number one hit as a label company would become Barry Manilow's hit single, Mandy, one of his biggest hits. Yeah. 
That's a great one. And would springboard the rest of his career into him making his second album titled Barry Manilow 2. Okay, yeah. To Barry, to Manilow. <laughs> Electric Boogaloo. Barry Manilow 2, Electric Boogaloo. And the success of Barry Manilow 2 prompted Astro Records to take his original debut album and remix it and re-release it under their label and called it Barry Manilow 1. Oh, no. So, so his first three records were Barry Manilow, Barry Manilow 2, then Barry Manilow 1. Yeah, I see where it gets messy. Kind of going all Star Wars on it with the naming. And this hot streak pretty much continues from this point all the way through the 80s and most of the 90s. He released 16 albums between 1973 and 1995, 13 of which have gone on to be certified gold or platinum. With 1975's Trying to Get the Feeling and 1976's This One's For You going two times platinum, and then 1978's Even Now, which is what we're talking about today, Going three times platinum. Yeah, the Fanalos are hardcore. They will support anything the man does. That's the roller coaster ride for the most part. Like I said, his I could talk about his career pretty much all episode. It continues on and on. There's more interesting things. But since we've made it to the point in his career where he releases even now in 1978, let's jump off the ride here and talk about it, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. this, is a, this is a good spot. <laughs> uh, for those keeping track at home... This was his fifth album, sixth if you count the re-released first album. Doesn't count. It's just a remaster, you know. Uh, It's his best performing album to date. Like I said, it went three times platinum. Uh, The four hit singles off of it were Copacabana, Somewhere in the Night, Can't Smile Without You, and the title track Even Now. Yeah, those are four of the ones that I was very familiar with. I'm sure those are probably the four everybody's familiar with. The album officially ended with the song Sunrise, but like I said at the beginning, we're going to talk about the two bonus songs that were put on all of the remasters, which are the unfinished track I'm Coming Home Again and No Love for Jenny. He has writing credits on nine of the 14 tracks we're going to talk about. So James, he does get his bonus point. That's over half. Mm -hmm. I think I guess I want to justify real fast why I chose this album over any of Barry Manilow's other albums. It's that one, this was his best performing album and it had the biggest clump of what I think are the fan favorite songs. Like you said, those four that everybody's familiar with. As much as I wish we could talk about songs like Mandy and Could It Be Magic, when you have an artist like this whose career's so massive, all the greatest hits are going to be spread out across too many albums, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I've run into some similar problems in picking which albums we should do. It's not fun to to have to cut some big hits, but the show must go on. And with that, I guess let's get the mixtaper over here and see how he does against me. It was my second time facing him. So it is. Uh, I think he's probably hoping to do better than last time. And Miley Cyrus... Your last pick, you shut him out. I did. I don't think I'm, um, I wish I could never have to play Factor Spin again because I doubt I'll do that well. Not only did you shut him out, you knew about half the facts already. I did a little bit of a deep dive into Miley's tattoos, and I'm fairly certain she got a tattoo of this dog. Oh, no. And that's why. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Uh oh. What's that mean? My next fact. Yeah, well, let's let's see what he's got this week. Hey, it's me, the mixtaper. I'm back and I'm I'm doing that thing again where I, I mix my voice to not sound like you because you're the one playing Factor Spin. Yeah, so for for the audience, right? For the audience, so they don't get confused. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's for the benefit of the audience. So we've got some Barry Manilow facts and spins, and we'll have some bonus rounds in the B side cut too, just uh, to keep you on your toes. Even more chances for me to ruin my perfect streak. I'm worried. I'm I, I'm just I'm going down the list and I'm worried these are all too guessable. But I can't do 
I take comfort in the fact that I can't do any worse than plastic hearts. <laughs> you can only tie. <laughs> I'm evil, but I might not be the best in factor spin. All right. Well, I know we've done a lot of uh, roommate facts in the past. I've given you a lot of roommate facts. Okay. This one's not a roommate fact. Oh, okay. Barry Manilow had a famous neighbor. Is it Jamie Foxx? It is not Jamie Foxx, no. But I figured you'd ask. Uh, who is it? Well, Barry Manilow's famous neighbors were Ronald and Nancy Reagan, former president and first lady of the United States. We've had a couple president facts before, too. This is like a combination of the two. Yeah. Okay. Did he Now, did he live next to them before or after the presidency? After the presidency. Oh, okay. Yeah, Reagan uh, left the White House and then moved next door to Barry Manilow. <laughs> oh, so they moved next to Barry Manilow. It's kind of a toss-up. Barry Manilow had a mansion or a house in Bel Air, California in 1989. Also, that was the final year of President Reagan's second term. The Reagans already had the house since 1986, but they didn't live in it until 1989. I see. So... Manilow was the first on the premises, but Reagan was the first kind of own. Kinda. Uh, it was purchased for the Reagans by a group of their friends, and they were leasing it. Interesting. How did uh, how did Barry feel about this? Great question. I imagine living next to a president comes with a lot of headache with like Secret Service and stuff, right? Yeah, as a matter of fact, it does. Barry was not the biggest fan. Barry said that he always knew when the Reagans were coming home because Secret Service helicopters would show up. And he complained because that made it difficult to sunbathe naked in his yard. I don't know why, but that sounds exactly like something Barry Manila would... <laughs> yeah, because it is. Interesting. And where was this at again? This was in Bel Air, California. He said it really got on his nerves, you know, that he couldn't sunbathe naked. But he said, who knows? Maybe they'll invite me over for dinner one night. And they never did. Barry Manilow, if you want to come over to dinner, I'll host you. <laughs> yeah, please, by all <laughs> means. Mix Taper, you're in charge of the food. I'll cook him something from our nice uh, kitchen wall hole fireplace. Yeah, you'll, you'll have to make him some coffee. Make some pumpernickel bread. <laughs> some, yeah, I'll take good care of you, Barry Manilow. That's terrifying. Uh, I'm going to say this is... I'm going to go with fact on this one with the caveat that if it's a spin... Some other musician lived next to the Reagans, and that's where you took this from. Mm, okay, okay. Well, lock it in. Dong. Locked in. Thank you. Yeah, sometimes I just, you know, I need to hear the sound before it's official. This is a fact. Yeah! Woo! All right, that's it for Factor Spin, everybody. I've done it again. So that Bel Air, California house, yeah, some, some other fun facts about it. Uh, Manilow's home was built in the 50s. And he renovated it and added a guest house, a gym, a movie room, a game room, and a recording studio where he wrote the songs. He didn't write the songs in the gaming room? No, nah, he might have wrote them anywhere. I don't know. But Reagan's estate sold for $15 million in 2016, while Manilow's, on the other hand, sold for, I quote unquote, just $2.7 million in 1993. Ugh, that's pennies. Pen yeah, I know, right? Chump change. <laughs> So that's a, that's a little bit about Barry Manilow's house. Uh, my next fact is also about Barry Manilow's house. Oh, okay. His home had room service. Like DoorDash? Kinda, but like more like actual room service. Like he had like a, like he had like a like a staff of like a cook and people who would bring him food. They weren't his staff, but yes. Oh, okay. Whose staff was it then? His home is very close to the Bel Air Hotel. Oh, where the Fresh Prince lives. 
uh, no, he lives with Uncle Phil. Uh, but, <laughs> but in Bel Air, yeah, the place. So his house is so close, in fact, that they would cater room service to him regularly. He would like call up the hotel and be like, hey, send me over some a 10-piece chicken nugget, and they'd bring it to him? Yeah, something like that. And he would especially do it when he would come back from tours. You know, he would be on the road a lot. And one of his favorite post-touring meals was their deli sandwiches because he said they were the best that you could get outside of Brooklyn. So he would he would order deli sandwiches to his house a lot. Interesting. Okay. I was pretty skeptical of this until you said that because I was thinking, why would he want hotel food? You know, catered to all of all things. Like you could, he's very manly. You get whatever he wanted. Why hotel food of all things? But if he's there's a specific sandwich he really likes, that gives it a little bit more credibility. Yeah, no, and I'm talking like it's right across the street. Like the hotel's address ends in a three, and Barry Manilow's ends in a five. That's interesting. Hmm. I don't know. I got my detective hat on. Okay. I can't imagine. This is a hotel. Yeah, it's the Bel Air Hotel. I can't imagine the Secret Service would have let a hotel be across the street from a uh, ex-president. <laughs> no, no. It was, it's the hotel, then Barry Manilow, then the Reagans. That's still really, that's really close to, I mean, that's got to be a huge security risk, right? It's probably not as much as you think. The Reagans had a lot of land. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay, what was, so it, was it really just the deli sandwiches or did he ever get other things oh he did get other things the most extreme order that he ever placed and this was like a one-time exceptional thing but he he came back from tour in late november Mm -hmm. right around thanksgiving time and so he had them cater a whole thanksgiving dinner for himself and most of his road crew which totaled almost 90 people 90 people sitting around barry manilow's kitchen table eating catered in hotel turkey yes it's quite an image i just if you're going to cater turkey in, why from a hotel? Hotel food's not that good. This is the Bel Air Hotel. It's like a four-star hotel with a legitimate restaurant. Yeah, but you can go get five-star restaurant turkey. You're Barry Manilow. <laughs> you're feeding 90 people. Ugh, I'm, I'm locking in spin. Doom. You're locking in spin. Well, this is a spin. Um. Yep. See, I had that detective hat on. Ah, the detective hat led you wrong. The only part of this fact was fake was the Thanksgiving dinner. Oh, oh I'm glad I, uh, I'm glad that you threw that in there. You, you asked specifically about it. I was prepared to leave it out and make this true. Oh, wow. Whew. I got lucky. <laughs> yeah, that's unfortunate. I was even going to say that he gave them an extra thank you by doing a holiday concert in the ballroom. It was, it was a whole... I had it set up. Man, yeah, my detective had almost led me wrong, but it knew. It knew? (laughs) It knew what it was doing. Well, let's see if it knows what it's doing on my next fact. Number three. Number three, indeed. And this is probably my biggest ramp fact. This one ramps up the most. Barry Manilow helped put a stop to delinquency in an Australian town. Which Australian town? The suburb of Rockdale, a suburb of Sydney. I guess I need. I guess before I start asking more specific questions, I'll guess I'll just ask why. <laughs> like, why did he do this? <laughs> well, in 2006, Rockdale was having a spike in a lot of loitering crime and uh, just rough and rowdy teenagers. Right. Mm-hmm. Apparently, every Saturday night there would be a hundred or more kids with cars uh people that they would call hoons call what sorry what Ho- hoons h-o-o-n a hoon okay like a goon but with an h yeah 
And these hoons would take their loud cars up to the parking lots of the town, this residential neighborhood, and they'd rev their engines and play their uh, what the Australians call doof doof music what? very loudly. <laughs> doof doof music. D O O F D O O F. The hoons were playing doof doof. Yeah, the hoons are doof doofing all over the neighborhood. <laughs> And uh, it's really disrupting the neighbors because they're out here on Saturdays at midnight. It's a horrible time. Doof doofing hoons. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You heard me. Did I stutter? It sounds like I did, but I didn't. (laughs) Doof doof. It's an Australian term for loud electronic music that has a heavy bass drum kick. So these doof doofing hoons are plaguing the city. (laughs) And the city councilor says, what are we going to do about these doof doofing hoons? This sounds like a Dr. Seuss novel. It does. It, it really does. So the city councilor says people are so intimidated by the hoons that they won't go to restaurants. Local businesses are suffering. What do we do? The, the city council, they try road spikes and boom gates and uh, antisocial behavioral orders. They, they try everything to quell the problems, but they're totally ineffective. Enter Barry Manilow. Fairmantle comes to Australia and goes, I know just what to do with these doof-doofing hoons. Well, enter Barry Manilow in a different kind of way. Gotcha. The city councilor decides that daggy music is one way to make Wait, the- hang on, hang on. <laughs> hang on. So hang on, we got doof-doof, hoons, and daggy? Yeah. Are those the three terms we're going with here? Yeah, daggy music is uncool music. So the city councilor says- we want the doof doof and hoons to go away. We need to play daggy music. We need to dag them. We got to daggy the doof doof. Yeah, so they said we're going to just start playing it through the speakers and hoping that it works. He says that the hoons show no respect for the law. No respect. In a spur of the moment decision, they just picked Barry Manilow. And they kind of justified it by saying Brighton is the Copacabana of South Sydney. <laughs> Okay. Yep. They also installed pink lights in the parking lots to uh, keep people away because the pink lights, their logic was it makes the skin look blotchy and it shows your spots. And all the cool teenagers don't like for that to be highlighted. They get self-conscious. And so they leave. <laughs> what? Yeah. What? Yeah. <laughs> we gotta make, we gotta use Daggy to get the doof doof and the hoons to be self-conscious of their spots. This is a Dr. Seuss book. What is going on? Yeah, they do this so that they drive their car somewhere else. Uh, okay, I, at this point, I don't know what to ask. So I'll just ask, do you have any other information? I sure do. Oh, boy. <laughs> it worked. It worked so well. Oh, that would have been a good question to ask. Yeah, it would have. I thought that's what you were about to ask. I, I kind of led you into it. I'm just, I'm too blown away by the, the doof-doofing daggy hoons. I was, I'm blitzing you. I'm trying to confuse you. <laughs> It's working. I'm going to hurt myself in my own confusion, Pokemon style. By 2008, they decided this was a resounding success. And dozens of... This was in 2008? I don't know why I was thinking this was in like the 80s. I guess just based off of the lingo. (laughs) No, this is is recent. (laughs) Cities all over the world that have similar problems have started using what's been called the Manilow method as a way to get rid of their own doof-doofing hoons. My brain is broken. (laughs) My brain is broken. I'm going to lock in fact and my sole reasoning, forget about all the details you gave me about the fact itself. I don't think you would have made up the words doofing, daggy, or hoons for this fact. And therefore, if you made those up, 
you deserve the point. So I'm going to lock in fact. I can look up Australian slang. I don't think you did. I'm going with fact. Doom. As a matter of fact, I did look up some Australian slang. Uh oh. And as a matter of fact, this is a fact. Hey! Three, four, three. Three, four, three. Three, four, three. Okay, I've got some in case of emergency facts here. Uh, spoiler alert, you found some of my earlier facts in your research about Barry Manilow. Oh, which ones? I had some facts about his advertising jingle, but that's okay. Uh, I have some backup facts. Fact four, Barry Manilow was never roommates with Jamie Foxx, but he is a big fan. Okay. Barry Manilow is such a big fan that he wanted to cast Gary LaVox's former roommate in a movie. Oh, is Barry Manilow secretly a director? (laughs) What? He's not secretly a director, no. Okay, what movie? Another film adaptation of Copacabana. You you mentioned the one that came out, the TV movie in the 80s. This was not that. This was going to be a new one. Okay, when was this? Uh, It happened sometime around 2005 is when he started kicking this idea around. So Barry Manilow wanted to put Jamie Foxx in a Copacabana movie in 2005. Which character does he want him to play? Jamie Foxx was ideally going to be playing Tony Parker, passionate lover and bartender extraordinaire. And so is it just like an, an is it going to be similar to the TV version of the movie? Is it just going to be like a full feature? Yeah, ideally. Uh and it was supposed to be a full-on musical. You know, the whole thing would be totally fleshed out. He never really completed the idea. It doesn't really exist, but he really wanted Jamie to be involved with it. I'm going to lock in. Oh, I wish we could just have stopped after the last one. No, no such thing. This is the first one I don't have a this is the first one I don't have a confident answer for. It feels awfully shoehorned in that we magically have a Jamie Foxx fact for this. I absolutely believe you and your dastardly ways. I am a dastard. <laughs> yes, you are. You would have specifically Googled Barry Manilow and Jamie Foxx to see what popped up. And maybe something like this popped up in a random interview. I don't know what to do. Yeah, this was the whole idea. Uh, the the main reason that Jamie Foxx wasn't available was he was tied up with Miami Vice. Barry Manilow said if they could get Jamie Foxx on board, the film would be a smash hit. Huh. I don't know what to do. This is the first one I've ever been stumped on. Well, good. I finally did it right. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> I'm going to say fact only because I think you did specifically Google Barry Manilow, Jamie Foxx to see if anything popped. And if something popped, there was no bit way you would have been able to avoid it. Like there was no way you wouldn't use it if something popped. And I don't think you would have made something up for it if nothing popped. I think you would have think you would have gone for something better. That's fair. This is on my in case of emergency fact list. I'm gonna, mm, okay, I'm gonna say fact with the caveat. If it's a spin, it's because this is some like fan theory casting, you know, and not from the mind of Barry Manilow. Well, it's a fact. It is not a fan theory. It's legitimate. And that's exactly how I found it. Yes, <laughs> I know you, Vic Saber. We live together. It's like you're always in my mind. I know how you think. Something like that. So, yeah, I definitely Googled Jamie Foxx and Barry Manilow. Just to double check, I, I actually started by searching whether they had ever been roommates. <laughs> that was a no-go, but I did find this. 
one of these times we're going to find somebody else who was a roommate with Jamie Foxx and neither one of us is going to believe it. It's true. Okay, well, I've got a couple more for the B side. I do. Oh, a couple more for the B side. Okay, well, if you want to hear these and see if I continue my perfect streak, hop over to the B side. That's right. All right, well, Mixtaper, let's get James back in here so we can move on with the episode. Uh, go, go work on dinner. I will see you. I'll see you when I see you, which is all the time because we live together. You'll see me next episode. I mean, yeah, we live together and you'll see James next episode. That's right. I'm not playing factor spin against you, though. Uh, we can do that anytime. We, we can we can we can practice in the off time. I'll get something ready for this weekend. <laughs> OK, <laughs> send me a calendar invite. Done. Yeah, <laughs> there it is. All right. Welcome back. James, let's talk album art. Yeah, album art for even now. It's a picture of Barry Manilow kind of looking out over a lake with a, with a forest in the background as I'm going to choose to believe that the sunrise happening. Are you sure it's a forest? It, it definitely looks like trees back there. Maybe it's a cityscape? Like a... It kind of almost looks like a skyline to me. As a Brooklyn fella, I kind of see some steam coming up and some skyscrapers. Oh, yeah. You know what? It probably, I guess I just, because it's hard to see what it is. I just assumed it was trees. But yeah, it probably is a city skyline. However, I think you're correct in saying this is a sunrise. Sunsets are usually pinker and purple. Yeah. And look how wistful, look how wistful this man is. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it, it, it fits perfectly with the themes of the album. Yeah. It's it's a good album cover. I don't think it sets the scene for the opening of this record, but literally everything everything but Copacabana is the perfect cover for. Yeah. Do you want to just do we want to just jump right in? We should. Yeah. All right. Let's jump into it. The first track on this album, Copacabana, in parentheses at the Copa, and it's the long version. Yeah. Uh it doesn't I've heard Probably all the versions, and this one doesn't seem any longer than the other ones. I love all the percussion in this song, from the the bongos to the congas to the triangle. This song is the story of Lola, a showgirl at the Copacabana nightclub, who has two guys fighting for her affection, barman extraordinaire Tony and mobster Rico. That's right. Uh, The song is actually based on the Copacabana Hotel in Rico de Juanarero and a New York bar called the Copacabana Nightclub. So it's kind of a a meshing of the two. This is the song that won Barry his one and only Grammy. And it's the song that has the TV movie based off of it. And apparently maybe a future movie starring Jamie Foxx. Maybe, but I think that project's long been scrapped. Uh, This song was used in popular pop culture, such as the Minions movie and the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, which we mentioned earlier. Yeah, what a tie-in. It's a great, like, tropical swing vibe to kick off the album. Yeah, totally uncharacteristic of the rest of it. On this song, reminds me a lot of, like, a Billy Joel Italian Nights style song in the sense of how, like, descriptive it is as it walks you through, like, an entire story. Yeah. You know, with, like, different acts. We have characters, they have a rising and falling action, and there's conflict, there's music and passion that are always They're the always fashion. in fashion. <laughs> it's so great. Uh, this song's a great example, in my opinion, of using the end of a chorus to transition back into the verse without it just abruptly happening. It falls off of it. Yeah, into the wavy Copacabana. I mean, what musicality, too. I mean, we'll see it time and time again on this record. He's just got this way that of stringing chords together that is so satisfying. I also love his use of staccato vocals um, on the who shot who. It, like, pauses in between each of those words. The scream 
Not usually my thing. Love it. It fits perfectly with the song. Yeah, and the background singers are really going for it. And then that third verse, that third verse just ties the whole story together. Yeah, the third verse takes place years later. Yeah, 30 years later, Lola's it's a disco now instead of a nightclub. But not for Lola. Not for Lola. She's Now she's lost her mind at the Copa. Copacabana. <laughs> it's a great song, and you could bop right along the whole time, but it does feel like it gets into a rut in its waning moments, just at the very tail end. Just a, just a smidge. It, it, it is one of the most complete storytelling songs that we've talked about on this podcast. People die. People die. People lose their mind. A whole, the whole establishment changes over. But that's all I got for that song. If you've got nothing else. I'm ready to move on. I'm ready to move on to Somewhere in the Night. Yes. This is the first song, not a Barry Manilow original. This song was written by Richard Kerr and Will Jennings. He got this song through his friendship with Richard Kerr, which I mentioned earlier. Remember, Richard Kerr is the guy that worked with him on his debut album. And so that's how he he reworked with him on this album and ended up with a version of the song. Mm. Barry's version made it to number nine on the U.S. Billboard 100, which is higher than any of the other versions. Uh, Somewhere in the Night's another one I've known quite well as, you know, a big song of his. It's one of the, it's the second single, you know, on the album. It's another one that's been out there a lot. And uh, I will say, I mean, we get past the thrill of Copacabana, and this is the part of the album where I would say strap in buckle up like get ready for the the long haul because from here on out everything is like somewhere in the night it's it's the quintessential barry manilow piano ballad yeah this is really where every song thematically aligns with what's going on here in somewhere in the night than copacabana musically too i would say like copacabana like it doesn't feel out of place for barry manilow but when you're like analyzing the album as a whole it feels out of place it does it does i think it's a great mix of floaty and rooted like the strings really help elevate it and what's surprising is that it's the depth of his voice that kept me grounded it's his voice and the piano the piano is a very heavy feature on this song like uh, it features on pretty much all these songs but like it stands out on this one in my opinion yeah and I'm, i'm gonna make sure to draw attention this time on your pick to all the lyrics that i like yes you better do that I'm just making sure I point out all the strong points. Loving so warm, moving so right, closing our eyes and feeling alive, we'll just go on burning bright somewhere in the night. Boom, certified poetry. I like that. I also love the line, music to to magic to end. Yeah, I'll play you over and over again. One thing that I was actually a little worried about when I was taking my notes that I was afraid you were going to get nitpicky on was on some of these songs, the lyrics are fairly simple. We'll get there. Yeah, I'm sure we will. We'll see how that it shakes out. But this song is great, and I don't have anything to... I mean, this is a song that I'm not hearing for the first or second or third or fourth or dozenth time, so I know this one well. This one, the pre-chorus of this song is so pretty. Like when it gets into the laying beside you, lost in the feeling, so glad you opened my door. It's so... It is. It is. Not like, like, you know, I've called things good. I've called things great. I've called things magical. This one, it just sounds pretty. The other thing I have to point out about this song, and it will become one of Barry Manilow's building blocks. Like we talked about before, about elements of a song that you could, if I were going to make a Barry Manilow song, these are the ingredients that I would put into it. One of those things is the key change. We haven't talked a lot about modulation in the podcast, and that's because it doesn't happen a lot. Obviously, Barry's going to use it way more than most, and I think it's a great way to sneak his songs up a couple extra notches. I think overusing key changes can make them a little less effective, and uh, at this point, I was listening to the record. I said, let's see how we feel by the end of the record, because this one is great. 
I'm interested to see how you feel by the end of the record because that, that was something I had as a highlight. I'm glad he does that more. It's not something you get a lot of. And I think the way he constructs his, his songs that you don't even necessarily, again, unless you're analyzing them song by song, you don't even realize it's happening necessarily. You're just so wrapped up in the song. Sometimes. And the more that it exists, I think, the more it cheapens the effect. We tend to be opposite opinions on, on stuff like that. I tend, the, I tend to view that as a cohesiveness highlight, and you tend to look at it as a stagnant detriment. That's true. So we'll see where it shakes out. But now it's time to talk about a Linda song, or the lack thereof. <laughs> I was going to say, a Linda song is the first song on the album that I wasn't intensely familiar with. Like, I knew the other ones thoroughly. Okay. That, that's, so that's going to be interesting to talk about. Yes, a Linda song, for those of you who are probably also less familiar with it, is a roundabout song about a girl named Linda. I say roundabout because it's technically a song about a made-up singer who doesn't write a song about Linda. My first note was, why didn't this dude write a song for Linda, jerk? She was right there all along. <laughs> yeah, she was right there all along. And yeah, you know, it's basically, he ta- it's a cautionary tale for not taking love for granted. Oh, yeah. He never talked about his affections or showed it, and it tore the relationship apart. It's interestingly composed. I'm interested to hear your thoughts about it, because like from a song structure standpoint, it's atypical. It is, yeah. It's a little bizarre. Like it's got a lot of complex rhythms that ebb and flow and shift while still maintaining a steady tempo. Mm-hmm. If you're less familiar with the song, it's not a song you're going to easily be able to sing along. No, to, it's think, not because it's constantly shifting right from the beginning. I thought it started with a very oddly clunky piano roll. It just felt not as smooth as I wanted it to be. Really? I, I, and this is also something because I, I, I assume you plan to put this on your albums of the month to give it the full month listen to like you did with Miley. Mm-hmm. And I'm interested to see how that changes for you, because I agree. I'm thinking back on even when I dug this one back up to listen to to decide if I wanted to use it for the podcast. I listened to this one. I was like, I don't remember this being as clunky. But then after listening to it for the past couple of weeks over and over again, I remember why I liked it so much. You you fall in love with it after you get used to it. It's it's a slow burn. It is. It is a slow burn. And I think it's missing something. Really? I just, I felt like there wasn't enough happening alongside the piano. You know, there, there are strings that don't carry it quite as much as Somewhere in the Night, but it does, it does pick up over time. But going through the song, they felt really watered down at the beginning. And the title hook, uh, a Linda song, I don't like that. I, I do like what precedes that. I like She Was There All Along, The One Real Thing in This Crazy World. I love the sentiment. The sentiment's there and it's spot on. I don't like the execution on he never wrote a Linda song. Interesting. Yeah, that just is a little forced to me. Interesting. Yeah, I, I think it's an okay song out of context, but to put it in the album like this, it pales in comparison to Copa, to Somewhere in the Night, and to the following track. Following track, Can't Smile Without You. This, if I had, if I was a betting man, I would bet this is the song the most people are familiar with from the album, right? Yeah, I put in my notes, I said, this is the Barry Manilow song all of you know, audience. Even if you say you don't know any Barry Manilow songs, you know this one. You know this one, you just don't realize it. This song has been in all sorts of pop culture, you know, TV shows, movies. It's, uh, I, I can think of several, I, I couldn't name them off the top of my head, but like I'm picturing images of like montages where this song's playing. 
You've probably heard if you've ever done like karaoke at a bar. This has probably popped up. Yeah, one of my first exposures to this song was in one such emotional moment in a feature film. Okay, before we get into the song itself, my notable facts about it. Uh, this is Barry Manilow's least favorite song to perform. Is it just because it's overplayed? Is this his Smells Like Teen Spirit? Yes, I think this is his version of uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit. He says to make it more palatable, he picks a member of the audience to do it with him duet style. Because he says he everybody knows the song, right? So he can just have go out into the audience and pick a random person and say, come up here and duet it with me. And that makes it more palatable because then he gets to interact with somebody. This is the second song on the album that Manilow didn't write, which could contribute to him not liking it. This song was cr- written by Christian Arnold. Jeff Morrow, and David Martin, who is also the man who originally performed it in 1975. Manilow's version, though, peaked at number three on the top 100 charts. And yeah, now we can talk about the song. First of all, I like the start with the whistle. That's really cool. Yes, the whistle melody is so catchy. I think that that's a big indicator to just how much inspiration and like knowledge he got from his jingle writing days, right? That like That whistle alone could be a jingle. It could. Yeah, it could. I like the idea of this song, too. It's a sad song about smiling and laughing and singing. Like, it twists our whole norm on its head. That can't smile without you turns this whole song into something really clever. It forces us to flip things in our heads. Like, if he can't smile without her, that means he needs her to smile, to laugh, to dance, to exist in all these ways. Like you said, he's able to use all of these lyrics that sound happy. Like the, the talk, he can talk about singing and laughing and dreaming and all these things that you associate with positives. But because he has to keep throwing the word can't or won't or not in front of them, it twists them negative every time. And it's great. The second verse, too, is lyrically stellar. Talking about how she came along like a song. She's part of a dream. And it's totally the opposite of what he's feeling now. But it's a cool way to sneak that in. And... Another key change, not tired yet. The chord progression on the bridge, chef's kiss, the hook, iconic. Yeah, oh yeah. I mean, again, it's the bridge, it's a real intensity builder, right? Every time he does the key change, it's to build this intensity level. Yeah. I can't believe this song is just over three minutes long because it seems to leave such a massive impression for its length. Mm -hmm. It's it's so catchy. I mean, the the lyrics are, this is one that the chorus itself, very simple, right? It, not a lot going on in the chorus lyrically from just like the word choice. Like you said, you mentioned the, the in your brain flipping of the connotation of the words, but very simple lyrics purposely. So, so you can sing along to it. If you're going to write a song this catchy, you want people to be able to sing along to it. And how can you not when that third chorus comes in? Like you said, that bridge builds and then they really just, they throw everything they've got at that third chorus. Yep. I mean, you could have never heard this song before in your life. And when they hit that third chorus, you're going to start singing. Because by then, it's implanted itself in your brain. It's planted itself firmly in your brain for the rest of your life. And you're singing by by chorus three. Yeah. Is that a challenge? It sounds like you've just challenged everyone. You will be, you will sing by chorus three. You're guaranteed. It wasn't meant to be that, but I guess. I I was trying to come up with a fun transition. I failed. Let's just move on. Leave it in the morning. Uh... Leaving in the morning. Another shocker. Sad song. (laughs) Sad ballad Manilow. Yes. Three words that have never gone together. This one, it's about a guy. It's about someone in a relationship not being able to end things because they don't want to see the sad look on their lover's face. And so they just leave. They do just leave like a jerk, like a jerk that doesn't write songs about Linda. I was shocked by... The guitar on this one. I said guitar in Manilow? Since when? Yes. The guitar rhythm at the start of the song. It's rocking. 
it's weird that it's so prevalent because so many of his songs just kind of leave it behind. And very heavy on the drums, too. It's kind of rock and roll. Yeah, it's up there in terms of, like, uh, Barry Manilow's album is adult contemporary to the genre that I'm choosing to go with. Yeah, it's adult contemporary pop, show tunesy, easy listening. And this one's the closest I th- up there for closest to an actual, like, rock song. And I think a lot of it has to do with the drums and the bass and the guitar and the instruments he doesn't typically use. And I think that's a good thing. Again, we're five tracks in now. Um, and like you said, we've, we had Coca Cabana that shook us up. But then for the last four, it's been very similar, right? And so I think it was a smart decision to throw us something we hadn't heard before. I think that points to the production value of this album from your scoring standpoint. Yeah, I definitely like the change in pace. I thought on the song, the chorus felt really, really big, but the verse was surprisingly small or condensed, which I think gave him a good opportunity to make the chorus even bigger, like as big as he needed it. Yeah, this one, because typically that's, again, that's also different from what he's done. A lot of it, his verses have been longer, more more impactful, and then the chorus was just a catchy hook. At the Copa. Copa, yeah, yeah. Whereas this one, he really, and I again, I but I think that's, I think that's on purpose, um, if you think about it thematically, right, the verses are where you tell the story. This guy doesn't want a story to tell. He he can't confront this event. He's just running away from it. And so I think thematically it fits that you're spending the majority of your time on a catchy chorus and there's not a lot of actual content. There were so many fade-outs on these songs. Uh, the fade-outs are one thing I, I wanted to add to the Barry Manilow ingredients list. You, you fade out, you do your major sevenths, you do your key changes. Can we write a spinet cookbook? Of the ingredients? But it's, it's a spinet cookbook, but you're cooking up songs. Yeah, how to make a song like Barry Manilow. I love that. Add that to the list of things we'll never have time to do, but really want to do. Yeah. <laughs> Any fans out there? Go. Go. <laughs> go. Go do it. Well, where do we go from here? Well, hang on, hang on. I got one last note. I come up with a good segue and we just... Roll it back. I know. Well, you you can you, you can use it again in a moment. In the chorus, my favorite part of the chorus is when everything drops out but the drums. Like you said, you mentioned the drums again. Uh, it it's a spectacular use and, and unexpected use of the drums. To just that brief moment where everything drops out and the drum keeps going. Yeah. And then the last line of verse two. If you look at verse two, the afraid I never find a love so true. It has a unique rhythm. It was interesting. It is. It felt a little out of place. That was my only really n- knock on the song was that 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 rhythm that rhythm didn't mesh with the one before and the one after it the way I would have expected. Yeah, it was unexpected. Definitely, but yeah, out of out of place. But where do we go from here? Into where do I go from here? The third track, not written by Barry. This song was written by Parker McGee for soft rock duo England Dan and John Ford Coley. Uh, their nineteen seventy seven album Dowdy Fairy Road. But again, Manilow's version became the far more popular one. Uh, <laughs> it is, oh, it's such a good song. Yeah, there's some great tension in the chords, and the horn part is really cool. Yes, the horn is great. And the emotion, I think this is one of his m- most emotional songs, like from a singing standpoint. The, you can hear the raw emotion in him when he sings it. Yes. It's a very visual song. I like that. You know, lying in a bed of leaves, looking up at the trees. You said our love was more than time. Again, very descriptive. He's very good at setting the scene. This song from the very beginning with that opening instrumental, you know the song's going to hit hard. Like you hear that and you're like, all right, 
Time to strap back in. This one, this one's gonna hurt. <laughs> <laughs> this one's gonna hurt. Yeah. Put on the knee pads. This one, this one's gonna hit me right in the feels. The chorus is so memorable, and it feels very familiar even beyond having heard it before. And it's so sweet sounding. It's another, it's another pretty sounding one. A lot of woodwinds on this one too. There's like that recorder, I guess maybe, and a flute that flutters in the background. I don't know if you caught that off of your one listen. There's a little flute fluttering back there. What I will say is we run the risk of the chorus being lyrically sparse again, where three of the lines are, where do I go from here? However, that fits the song. That This is a time where that's a good decision. It's a, it's, I am, so it especially fits with, so I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't see anywhere in the lyrics where it signifies what happened to the person that is no longer around. I choose to believe the person died. I think it makes the song more emotional than just the person left them, like broke up with them. Uh, I think if you imagine it as like uh, someone whose lover has died and now they're going, where do I go from here? Especially the line, you promised our love would take us through the years or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. You said you take me through the years. So where do I go from here? Like it, like that, like it, like that line specifically, it makes me think of like wedding vows or something like that. Right. And and it fits, it, it fits with the chorus too, where like, they're in anguish, they're processing, they're in grief, and so they're just constantly saying, where do I go from here, over and over, right? And it fits better with the metaphor of autumn, where leaves are blowing off the trees. It's not a thing that a leaf chooses to do. Like, it's blown off the tree naturally. It's it's a thing that happens. It's colder now, the trees are bare, and the nights are long. Like winter's sad and a depressing, the, 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 the depressing season, so... It does feel like a death. That makes the song way sadder than I heard it. I know. And next time you listen to it, you'll be thinking of that and it'll be more emotional and you'll need the strap in even harder. Right. I'll need another strap. Get out get out the get out the spare straps. Get out get out your spare straps. Uh, it's a great song. It's a highlight for me too. Even now it's a highlight for me. See what I did there? I did. Even now, the title track, smack dab in the middle. The title track we're finally here. They, even now, only peaked at number 19 on the Hot 100. That's it? Yeah. And it became his ninth song, though, to reach number one on the Billboard Easy Listening chart, where it spent three weeks there. The Billboard Easy Listening chart sounds like some tough competition. Uh, Even now is meant to be somewhat autobiographical. Yes. Manilo said that the events of the song happened to him, and he was just lucky enough to have a creative output that let him express it. This is another song I know pretty darn well. And I just gotta say, what a sad breakup album you've dropped on me. These are all, I call them drop kicks to the heart. Every single one of them is just Barry Manilow's drop kicked our hearts. Yeah, drop kicks to the heart. I love that. Drop kicks to the heart. This song is about someone who can't let go of a past lover. Uh, even now, they're in a new relationship, right? There was somebody else, but as they climb the stairs, they still are thinking about this past love. And I'm going to I'm going to drop kick your heart myself here. Oh no, the personal heart drop kick. I in my own head canon typically like to view this as an extension of the previous song. Oh, the reason yeah, right? The the person who's been left alone after the death of their lover and where do I go from here has tried to move on and be happy with someone else, but they still can't stop thinking about their previous dead wife or whatever. Or whatever. Yeah. Again, an, an extra layer to the emotional dropkick. I love the orchestra and the bass on this song. Some of the best on the record. Oh, it's so good. 
Mm-hmm. And another key change, just to point it out. The line in verse two, even now I wake up crying in the middle of the night. That's what, that's a powerful lyric to me. I don't know why. It, I guess it's, it's as it's swelling into that first chorus and everything, it's just, it, the intensity is built. It's, it's just, man, it's good. I, I think this song has a huge, huge climax, but such a quick fade. It, it falls off that so fast. I feel like it's still there. It, it, it brings it back down, but I don't think it's bad. I, didn't, I don't think it's bad necessarily. It's just notable. I think it, I think it's fitting. It's not like I, it's not like it's not like jarring or anything. No, it's a good jar. Oh, that's where they keep the pickled eggs. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a callback for you, longtime listeners. Verse three is what really makes me think it's the same person, right? Uh, when I never hear your name and the world has changed so much since you've been gone, that line specifically. That's true. Well, especially talk about the changing world and the autumn in the previous song. I can get behind it. <clears throat> the pause between verse three and the last chorus is, in my opinion, the best singular moment on the album. And it's silent. That moment of silence between verse three and the last even now hit. The song is swelled through verse three to this tipping point. And the anticipation is just so large. You're anticipating this big hit. And it almost lifts you out of your chair as you're just like waiting for them to hit. And then they hit it and they just slam you back down into your seat. So you're crashing back down with the even now, you know, it's it just it it's the best singular moment. What an analogy. You think Barry Manilow picks you up out of your chair and slams you back down into it? Well, apparently he's drop kicking you, so maybe he's just a WWE wrestler. He's, he's getting violent. Barry Manilow <laughs> is violently heartbroken. Well, I think that brings us into the next track. I was a fool to let you go. Yeah. There we go. Uh, this song is about someone melancholy over their decision to leave their previous lover. They regret the choice, and that's what it's about. They were, they think they're full. <laughs> that's it. It's a kind of bluesy swing vibe going on to it. This song is different. I think I was a fool to let you go. Is kind of jarringly unpredictable. Like I said, he does some interesting like pauses and stops in places. It's unique, and I like it. Again, it's one of those things that after a song like Even Now, nothing's gonna compare, right? It's true. And so. I think your best choice is to completely shake it up. Because if you try to throw another song in the same vein of like an even now, it's just going to be lackluster. So you got to do a complete shift after something like that. It's like a palate cleanser almost. Oh yeah, it cleaned my palate. <laughs> I, like I, said, I really like the bluesy swing. The bass guitar and piano at the beginning really set the mood. The horns to come in and the instrumental break like teleported me to an 80s jazz bar. Did it? Yeah. Where are you now? Well, after it teleported me back. So I'm... I'm I'm here. Oh, it's probably back. Okay. I I really, I like the song. I can get why maybe it'd be drawing off for one listen, especially this is probably another one you weren't very familiar with. I think Barry Mantle is a crooner for a reason. And this is one of those songs that just croons, you know, Uh, that end chord though. I love the way this song ended. It was sick. Not a fade out. Nice horn part. Just a good solid ending to this song. It was much better uh, at the end than a lot of the other ones have been. Yeah. I, I, I think after a couple more listens, you'll be able to appreciate this for the jazz bar blues ballad that it is. Yeah. And if not, you're just losing touch. <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> See, yeah, I can do it occasionally up next. The song is losing touch. And this is the first song on the album that reminds me of the fact that Barry Manilow wrote the score for a freaking musical or two. Yeah, this is show tunesy. Because this song feels like it could be in a musical. There were some things about this one that struck me kind of funny. Oh, we start off with this. 
you haven't touched your scotch, staring out the window, staring at your watch. That just felt off. Yeah, it's it, that's why I called it show tunesy, right? It sounds like like the lead in that like whenever the uh, character in a musical starts singing, they kind of talk, sing a couple of lines to get into it. That's exactly what this sounds like. It does. It just it's fine in that context, but this isn't that context. And then and then he launches right out of that Scotch window watch into that's been happening too much. I think we're losing touch. I like the way that he illustrates this of staring at things longingly, you know, of of being so disconnected but much in touch ow and then and then he did it again oh yeah absolutely he does it i think like three times throughout every time i was like if i gave this to you on an album you would hate that you would complain about much in touch off of one listen yes i think thematically for the for the album as a whole it's not out of place it's just unexpected it is unexpected like i said the lyrical and musical structure of it is very different, but the themes are still there. And that underlying principle of, I guess, storytelling is still there, right? Even with these simple, okay, yeah, you don't like that he's rhyming much with touch in such a campy way, right? But this is folksy traveler music, right? It's like somebody, they're sitting around a fire eating beans, you know, or whatever, out in the wild, wild west, and some guy with a guitar is plucking this out. You know, it, it feels like another one of those. Yeah, it does. I think the bridge was really bizarrely intense, especially since the whole song is built around this idea of apathy and being out of touch. The bridge just smacked me in the face. I was like, I don't like that. Oh, no, I liked it. I liked it. It doesn't match the theme of the song. <laughs> I No, I think it builds to it nicely. The, the, the bridge is that paradigm shift. Right. If you're going to do a shift, you got to do it in the bridge. It feels like the bridge is like where the final straw has happened. And he's like, is it, it's building to a confrontation because you get into that final verse of won't you tell me what's wrong? It's like he's finally had enough of it and he's confronting this person. Right. Yeah. And so like it needs to swell. If you're going to start to elevate it up into some sort of like confrontation, it's got to swell up. And I like it. And then we get to this last little line, this closing movement. There's so much to lose, and I think we're losing touch. Why did we bury this line until the end? Hello? It's the best line in the song and one of the best lines on the album, and he just hit it back here and threw the rest of the lines in the garbage disposal. It's the final the final punch. You know, we, we've got drop kicks. We've got <laughs> sl- chair slams. Now he's punching you. He's giving you this song, and then he just leaves you with that last little couplet, and it just sits there in your mind going, oh, man. I, I think it's intentional. I know he's considered an easy listening artist, but I truly think he's trying to engage the audience. I think that's part of why maybe he hates Can't Smile Without You so much because people don't listen to it. They're just singing along to the sad song that's supposed to be sad, but they're just singing along drunk happily. He likes all his pretty songs and he don't know what it means. Yeah, exactly. He wants you to be actively listening and feeling what he's trying to say. And so that's why he's hitting you with these unique things and these complex rhythms and these lingering thoughts and i like it i like an artist who's not just trying to write catchy one-off tunes that aren't gonna last this song is just kind of here for me i don't love it i don't hate it but it wouldn't end up on too many of my playlists don't get me wrong okay i'm again i'm not trying to say that this is on the same level as copacabana or somewhere in the night no i'm just trying to set the expectation that this is a really good song. It's just, we, I think we've used a similar analogy before. It's like an emerald amongst a bunch of diamonds. Compared to everything else, it's meh at best on the album. But I would take this over a lot of mid-tier songs 
on some of the other albums we've done. Up next, I Just Want to Be the One in Your Life. This is the last song on the original album that was not written by Barry Manilow. This song was written by Michael Prince and Dan Walsh. Yeah, I like this song. This was a, a good little... It's bizarre to think of the title as so clunky. I Just Want to Be the One in Your Life. I know, it's very clunky. But it, he makes it work so well. It's such a big hit, too, with the strings. I love that. I love that high note in there, too. Did you hear it? He really went for it. And he succeeded. It was a good choice. He succeeded. It was a successful go. Yes. Yes, it was. The chorus is another very catchy, sing-alongable one. Yeah. Like I said, that it's just those two, it's just those two lines said twice. A very dramatic chorus. Simple. He, he saves all the meat and potatoes for the verses. Which, if you've been listening to this podcast for any period of time, you know that that's my go-to type of song. A song that focuses on the story and on the verses. And the chorus is just there to tie everything together. Another key change, and by this time it's a little played out for me. Really? Yeah, not as not enough to like ruin the previous ones, because they've all been so good on songs like Even Now and Somewhere in the Night. But this one kind of fell flat i just again this is where i think our musical tastes just start to differ right because again like you're tired of the same old say like you want every song to be unique it feels like like in a perfect world they don't repeat any techniques but yet somehow it still is cohesive sure i guess ideally and then in my perfect world i want it to everything i want it to be as similar as possible but sound unique you want 13 of the same song. No, that's the thing, right? That's what I'm saying. I want it to sound as, like, if you could th- make 13 of the same song, but it sound different every time, I'd be impressed. You know, that'd be perfect. Like, yes, but that's not obviously not possible. So I settle for the next best thing, which is just cohesiveness. And so using key changes throughout your album, but each one being unique, it's not the same key change every time, is a, is a, is a plus for me. Whereas for you... You're like, okay, I, you've proven you can do that. You've done a good song that does that. Go on to use some other technique, you know, is like where you're at. I do think I Just Want to Be the One in Your Life was probably, it's probably one of the better non-greatest hit songs. It was one of the ones that impressed me the most that I hadn't yet heard. Gotcha. Okay, I can get behind that. I uh, forgot to take notes the first time. So when I sat down to actually write my notes up for this, I forgot because I was just too busy singing along. <laughs> <laughs> so i think this is the only one that after i start taking my notes i have to go listen to a second time so i can actually write down notes why, why don't you say uh we start again and just start from the top okay welcome to spin it i don't know that was a poor transition into starting again that was pretty bad you didn't even go farther than just saying welcome to spin it starting again yeah this is the next musical sounding song like this sounds show tunesy it kind of does. It's gimmicky, right? If, if it, that's what makes it show tunes. I think a lot of show tunes, especially like when you think like older show tunes, you know, they, they're pretty gimmicky. Uh, but yeah, the, the cadence and the slight talk singing that they do, I do, I, again, it doesn't bother me on this one. I'm typically not a talk singer. I think just a couple episodes ago, I dissed it. But this one's good. The one that caught me off guard was the lyrical tumble of this. Because it is, whew, I started to think I could think about starting again. Eh, that one was not my favorite. It's uh, it's interesting. It is interesting and it's different, but that one... I like the way it's sung. The words themselves are clunky, but I do like the way it's sung. Like, the execution is there. It pulled me out of the song just because of the lyrics and the way I was trying to decipher it in my head. And I was like, really? Yeah, it was kind of weird. I just, I I guess I was distracted by the pretty sounding vocals on, I could think about starting again. Like I like that uh, bounce that I could think of. 
it's very engaging uh, rhythmically. Yeah. And so I didn't even, I didn't really spend a lot of time trying to work out, tease out in my head the, what it meant. I think uh, I do like a lot of this song. The flaws were gone. The saint remained. I like how we get this image, this, this idea of starting again at different points in the cycle. Oh, I, we're meeting again. You know, we're starting again at the beginning of the relationship. Uh-oh, the decline is starting again. Uh-oh, the breakup is starting again. Uh-oh, the post-relationship <laughs> is starting again. We're full circle, you know? It's interesting to think about starting again at different points around that cycle. Yep. Wasn't the start. It was really the end. What a great twist. I'm interested to know your thoughts on Sunrise. This is the original final track of the album. And the last one we're going to talk about on the normal cut, for those of you still listening to that. It's interesting to start the final song on the album with the lyric, and so it began. <laughs> uh, Yeah, I, I actually put in my notes. Is this a continuation of starting again? Because, you know, it begins again. I like I like the idea of waiting for your life to come on and then seeing the sunrise. It's such a powerful metaphor and it's very visual. Oh, uh, it's very powerful metaphor. And uh it's it's got that kind of happy tropical beat that we haven't even had a trace of since Copacabana, which kind of gave this album a full circle feeling to me. I'm glad that I'm glad you picked that up. To a degree. Yeah, it wasn't complete. I mean, it's 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 no we are where it specifically is meant to pull you back to the beginning. But it's definitely meant to be reminiscent. The sentiment is there. Yeah. I think Sunrise is another album highlight, even for a non-greatest hit. And I think this is the song that maybe the most greatly benefits from being in the context of the rest of the album behind it. I like the song on its own. And it does bring a lot to the table, but in the context of the album, it really does a great job of concluding this kind of bleak album (laughs) to a really optimistic close. It it, it kind of spins everything back around. It's not like soup. It's not like happy. It's just optimistic, like you said. Yeah. We never we never go full happy. We just we we make it we make the turn from sad to hopeful. There's hope and. I think it's the same kind of thing that we saw happen on albums like Songs in the Key of Life with Easygoing Evening, with Golden Hour and Rainbow, with Pixie Queen, even with Plastic Hearts and Golden G-String. I think we saw the same kind of phenomenon where we, we wrap it all up with a hopeful bow. And that instrumental, that, that like 30 second instrumental fade out is just a great way to say we're done. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's not an abrupt stop. It's not like... It, uh, you know, you either got to go big and have a big punchy, just bam, that's the it stinger. Or you need to just kind of trade off, trail off as the sun rises, you know? Yeah. It's good. This song did have the weakest transition. You think? Verse two into the chorus just didn't transition how I wanted it to. That's fair. It's not very strong. It's a little flimsy. It, just, it, it Like I've highlighted specifically on some of the other songs how well he was able to take and bleed from one into the other. And this one, it just kind of stopped and started. There was no kind of, he just kind of hoped nobody noticed that he had transitioned. <laughs> and I noticed. Well, yeah, of course. Um, but yeah, that's all I got about the original album. Fantastic. For, oh, should we go talk exclusively to our B-side listeners about those couple of bonus tracks? I suppose we should cover the bonus tracks. That brings us into Final Spin. Welcome back, Normal Cut listeners. We definitely love you just as much. It's true. Now, last time we did this, we tried switching our ranking styles, and we both agreed it. we hated it. So what are we going to do this time? I think I'll still give you my top threes and James the Bull mention, and then I also have an actual score. Yeah, okay. My top three. 
in album order. Number one, it, this is should be the most predictable thing in the world. Number one, Somewhere in the Night. Number two, Can't Smile Without You. Number three, Even Now, the Jamesable mention goes to Copacabana. Wow, Copacabana get Copacabana gets Jamesable mention. Okay, it does. It does. So what's your pot? What's your playlist pick? My playlist pick is Somewhere in the Night. Somewhere in the Night. All right. Yeah, I'm perfectly happy with that. So let's just give you in terms of a score. Music. The music on this album is really strong. We see a lot of major seventh chords, a lot of minor chords that are just are chained together really, really well in a way that a lot of other artists that we've talked about haven't used them. A lot of these songs have unique flares like Copacabana and Sunrise. A lot of these songs have bizarre, confusing at times rhythms. I think music is very solid though, and I'm giving it an 86. Lyrically, it's hit and miss. There are spots where the lyrics are really good. I think there's a little bit to be desired sometimes. Uh, Much in Touch, Many and Jenny. Although I did not factor in the bonus tracks into my ranking, by the way. Smart. They shouldn't. Um, lyrics are going to get an 84 from me. There's a lot of drop kicks to the heart, but there's also a lot of kind of moments where it feels a little flat and bland. Instruments of production get a little played out. We've got moments where everything is really cool, but a lot of that gets tired. You know, every one of these songs has a swell and a build like that and a key change like that. At some point, it stops feeling special. At some point, it starts feeling samey. Uh, instruments of production getting an 85. And overall vibe, this is a score you're not going to like. The overall vibe, it's a sad album. It's consistently sad. I think it's on theme the whole time, and that's nice. It just feels like a, despite being an easy listening album, like you said, sometimes when you're trying to analyze these things critically, really get in there and break it down and intentionally listen to it, it's not so easy to listen to. Yeah, but you're not usually doing that. That's not its purpose. That's just for us. That shouldn't factor into the vibe. (laughs) Well, I haven't had that experience yet. The vibe is still an 83. It's not, it's not awful. No, that's awful. What? It's not awful. That's the one I'm going to fight you on is the vibe. I was, I'll, I'll grin and bear the other ones, but vibe I'm going to fight you on. Okay. Okay. Fine. Well, that puts my final score for this album at an 85.7. That puts it, yeah, number 191-ish. Well, let me get through my analysis, I guess, before I blow up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Please. Yes, by all means. My top three are actually my top eight yeah great are you doing that thing where you can steal top threes from future episodes so normally i have four right three top threes and a honorable mention i have eight things on my list so that's four slots i owe the next four episodes i only get two picks that's what i said yeah i can't believe you're gonna do that to yourself i'm doing it on my own i'm doing it to myself on my episode i can't not pick some of these songs and my my top Eight, I guess, in album order. Oh my gosh, it's it's a twelve track album. It's a twelve song. It's fourteen tracks. So it's fourteen. If you count the bonus one, sure. My my eight top threes is how I should really say it. Copacabana, somewhere in the night, can't smile without you. Leaving in the morning. Where do I go from here? Even now, I just want to be the one in your life, and no love for Jenny. <laughs> I don't want to spoil the B-side cut. That one's a surprise. That's a surprise pick for me. I like the funky groove it's got. And for the playlist pick, I'm going with Even Now, the title track. So our two will be Even Now and Somewhere in the Night. Not bad. Which are the two I wanted. I wish Copa and Where Do I Go From Here could be on the playlist. But Even Now and Somewhere in the Night, they gotta be there. They're the two that's gonna be there. My official ranking for the episode, and this should come as no surprise, I mean I picked it. This is getting one. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> this is getting 
nine doof doofing daggy hoons out of ten. The doof doofing daggy hoons have made their return. Something I've listened to for years. It's that is actively up there. Like my top artists. It's going to be hard to beat. Yeah, I suspect it will. It might happen. And if it does happen, it's probably because it'll be something I would have already picked for myself. Nothing's dethroned Billy Joel yet. We'll see. My goal is just to get you to put something in your top 100 that I've given you. And I've failed both times. I'm coming back before 20 episodes is up to try again. It's my mission. To crack the top 100 right now, you'll need a score of over 89.2. I can get it to a 90. I just, I basically just need to get something that hits an average of a 90 and we're good. That's true. All right. Well... Uh, you'll be seeing me with a new Connor's pick uh, sooner than 20 episodes, but we'll be seeing you, audience, next week with another episode of the Spin It Podcast. James will be back in control. Uh, in the meantime, you know, you can follow us on socials at on Twitter at Spin It Pod and on Instagram at Spin It Pod Official. We got our own website, www.spinitpod.com where you'll find all sorts of bonus content like the B-side of this cut if you're still listening to the normal cut. Go listen to it again where there's more content. Uh, we also have supplemental content up there, up like some blooper reels and things like that. I think that's everything I'm supposed to tell you. So assuming I didn't forget anything, I only got one thing left, and that's... Keep, keep spinning. spinning! All right, we made it to the end of the Barry Manilow roller coaster. We did it. All right, we can take off the straps, including the extra, the spares. Yeah, time to take off all the spare straps. Put them all back. Well, I'm going to have to keep them. I'll have to listen to the album again now. Yeah, you know, keep them keep them handy. I'll keep the straps handy. <laughs>